Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Good evening, King's Cross. It's good to be with you guys again. My name is Nick Bogardis. I preached for you guys a couple months ago. Um, we have uh, friendships at this church that go back a long, long time, from the Dodds uh, to the Navarros to the Poblettis um, to seeing Ricky Gossett here. Um, we have uh, some good friends here, and so it's always fun to be here and serve with you guys. Um, I threw my back out yesterday, so I'm going to kind of stay stable. And if I fall over, someone grab me um, and forgive the whimpering if it happens. <laughs> All right, let's pray and then let's, let's jump in. Um, Lord, we, uh, we, we just admit our need for reorientation, our need to be reminded of your story and our place in it. God, we are distracted and busy and uh, running from place to place and activity to activity and consumed with any number of things aside from uh, the reality of existence, that we are yours, that you reign. God, would you reorient us within your story uh, through this interaction of Jesus with Matthew this evening? In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, my grandfather had um, a slide projector. You guys are familiar with those? Little circle with slides, you click through it, right? Anyone familiar with those? If you didn't personally have one or have a grandparent who had one, maybe you've seen that episode of Mad Men, Carousel, incredible uh, uh, scene there. But we would watch the, uh, my parents' family vacations when they were growing up, and you'd hear the stories of uh, growing up in Ohio. You'd hear uh, stories of going to Europe together. You'd see these pictures that I wasn't a part of, but a story that I come from. My dad growing up had um, one of those VHS shoulder-mounted things. You guys remember those growing up? Anyone? I'm 44, so I'm dating myself a little bit. But if you were to pull one of those out today, you'd probably get the cops called on you out of fear of some kind of uh, armament you might be pulling out. But, it, I mean, it's a big thing you throw on your shoulder and you videotape Little League games and family vacations and things like that. We had, we had uh, bookcases full of VHS cassettes of our family story. And we used to love to watch those. We also had those um, uh, photo albums. Did you guys have those massive photo albums growing up? Had to flip through them page by page. You could use them as CrossFit equipment because they were so big and heavy. Um, we used to look through those stories and be reminded of growing up in Long Beach and picking boysenberries and little things just from your childhood that you only remember because of the pictures and the stories that you hear when you look at those pictures. Now in our modern day, probably a lot of you parents might have Apple TVs. We have Apple TVs because all your pictures come from this little guy, right? So our kids love to watch our pictures on our Apple TV. When that screensaver comes up and they see pictures of, again, family vacations and first days at kindergarten and things like that, and they love to hear the stories behind the pictures. There's a story of, from C.S. Lewis's life, an anecdote that I love where uh, during the space race in the 50s, if you remember your history at all, uh, America and Russia were racing to see who would go to space first. 
um, Russia got there first. And when their cosmonaut came down, the story was that he came back to Earth and he said, uh, being a good atheist communist, said, um, I went to space and God was not there either. And Lewis said, and I'm paraphrasing Lewis because I'm sure he's infinitely more articulate than me. He said something along the lines of, well, that's stupid because that's thinking that you relate to God as the man on the first floor of the building relates to a man on the second floor of the building as though it was a matter of elevation. Lewis says, no, actually, we relate to God the same way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We are characters within God's story. It's not a matter of geography, but the, the storyteller. Here's the thing is, we constantly forget this. We constantly forget um, the placement of ourselves in time and space and existence, and more importantly, what our purpose is. My big idea for you this evening, as we look at this passage from, from Matthew, is that without regular reminders, the story that you and I both live in is far too small. The most important truths about you are gained by understanding who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and what it means to follow him. The most important things about you are always connected to those truths. So here's our roadmap for our time together. The first, we're going to see that Jesus seeks and calls. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus redeems and remakes. And thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus knows and loves. And like family pictures, these might be familiar phrases to you, familiar truths. But this is one of those moments where we get to open up the book or turn on the slide carousel or look at family photos and be reminded of the goodness of these truths. So first, Jesus seeks and calls from verse 9. Matthew 9, 9. Now, as a reminder, Matthew's gospel was a discipleship manual for the early church. It was the, um, the, the, the book that the first apostles and that the early church used to train disciples, to teach them who was Jesus, what did he do, what did he teach, what did he come to do. Let's talk about his death and his resurrection. That was Matthew's gospel was the primary resource for that. It was a discipleship manual. And if you remember the early church in Acts 2, it's not that different from our current moment. It was multicultural. It was diverse. It was broadly geographic after Pentecost. The church spread all around the ancient world. And the question for a lot of the disciples was, how do you unify a group like that? A group as far reaching as Greece and Turkey and North Africa and Palestine, how do you unify a group of people? Well, you unify them around who Jesus is and who he says particularly is in and out. Because as we know in our day and age, when you start drawing lines culturally, you start drawing lines of who's in and who's out. And we'll see that in just a minute. But you unify them on who Jesus is and who he says is in and out in the group. And then another piece of just introductory information, if you remember tax collectors. If you're not familiar with tax collectors, they were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire. The Romans were occupying Israel. They were an oppressive uh, regime that really <laughs> exercised their power with some flagrancy. And the tax, the tax collectors would collect money from their own people for the occupying force. And worse, they would collect more than they were supposed to and enrich themselves on it. So it would be like someone in Poland in 1939 working for the Germans and extorting their own people to both pay the Germans and make themselves rich. It would be like someone in the Middle East 
working for ISIS and taxing their own people and enriching themselves while they funnel those funds back to ISIS. If you can imagine how much you would hate that person in your community, that's how tax collectors lived. If you've seen The Chosen, have you guys seen that? A few of you guys? Okay, everyone else not nodding your heads, go watch The Chosen. It's fantastic. It, it paints a picture of Matthew and his uh, rejection from the world, both beneath Rome because they viewed him as less than them and from his own people because they hated him. That's how tax collectors lived, and that's who Jesus is going to interact with here. So Jesus seeks. Look at what we see in verse 9, that Jesus sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth. Jesus is walking along the way. He's passing along from there. He sees a man called Matthew sitting at his tax booth, the verse says. What I want you to notice is, what is Matthew doing? He's not at the synagogue worshiping. He's not doing charity work. He's not doing something commendable. He's actually going about the very vocation that his people hated him for. He was participating in the subjugation of his own people. He was doing the activity that brought on himself and his family shame. And that's where Jesus finds him. In our current moment, it's kind of become popular. Maybe you guys have heard this to say things like, well, the universe sent me this opportunity, or I don't know what the universe might have for me. Anyone familiar with those kind of statements? Stories like this show you how silly and uh, stupid, those kind of statements or views of reality are because the difference is the universe is not personal. The universe does not seek you out. The universe does not care. It has no will or volition or feeling, but guess who does? Jesus does. And Jesus seeks out this condemnable man at the very place where he's doing the thing that everyone hates him for. Jesus is personal. He seeks and whether it's Abraham or Moses or Paul or Matthew here, Jesus seeks and he initiates. Jesus seeks and he initiates. He always moves first. And you know this from your own story. Whether you were raised by faithful Christian parents who blessed you with an upbringing where you were raised to know Jesus, or whether you come from a background where you were a total pagan and cared nothing for him, whatever it was, he initiated. He always initiates. And that's the first reminder here is that Jesus has sought you. Maybe it was a radical experience. Maybe it was through faithful parents, like I said. Maybe it was through a teacher or a youth leader. Maybe it was after a night at the bar or at the back of a church or on a sports team or on a missions trip. Whatever it was, he has sought you just like he sought Matthew in this passage. But Jesus doesn't just seek, he also calls when he finds, he also sends. He calls. What does he say to Matthew? Follow me. Two words. Two. The first word is terrifying. Follow me. He doesn't hand out a timeline or an agenda. He doesn't hand out a task list. He doesn't hand out a life plan or five tips for a better marriage. He also doesn't say, sit out on the sideline, get in the game when you're ready. His call to those that he seeks is, follow me. Why is that hard? It's hard because that first word requires a letting go. It requires a openness to what, whatever may come. There's a story from Brennan Manning um, in his book, Ruthless Trust. He tells the story of an American uh, lawyer who was, had an incredible practice, found himself at midlife, kind of in a crisis, and he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with the second half of my life, but before I do whatever it is, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to work with Mother Teresa. 
So this lawyer gives up his practice, goes across the world to work in Mother Teresa's house of death and dying. And if you know anything about that work, it was worth, it was with, it was in the circumstances we can't fathom unless you've seen it, smelled it, tasted it. Horrific circumstances, a big transition from being a lawyer in America. So he's there for a few weeks. He's serving these poor, dying, sick people at their most vulnerable, horrible moments at the end of life. And he finally gets to meet Mother Teresa. And she approaches him and she says, hello, my son. And he's really excited because he gets to meet his hero. And he says, hello, Mother Teresa. And she says, what can I do for you? And he says, will you please pray for me? And she said, of course, I'll pray for you. What would you like me to pray for? And so he starts telling his story about his job transition, midlife, all that stuff. And he gets to the end of it. And he's like, so if you would, would you please pray for clarity for me? And she says, I will not do that. And he says, what? Why would you not pray for clarity for me? And she said, because clarity is the last thing we hold on to before we have faith. If you're like me, you want that clarity. You want to know everything's going to be okay. And this is, one, this is one of those sermons that is perfect, and I'm thankful. Because we just accepted a job in Michigan. I'm an Orange County boy. <laughs> Moving to Michigan in December doesn't sound awesome in my mind. <laughs> Moving away from my home and my parents, the place where my grandparents are buried, the church we were married in, that's so scary. I want to know it's going to be okay. But all I know is he says, follow. That's all he says, follow. Matthew leaves a lucrative career. He lived well. He may have been despised by his people, but he lived better than all of them. He leaves his career, his income, his security to follow Jesus. And he may not be calling you to leave your career, but there's always a cost in following Jesus. We follow a guy who was crucified, who will call your money, your relationships, your time, your power to be used for his kingdom. The trick to following is to see the second word, to follow me. Because you can follow someone you trust, right? You can follow someone who loves you. The only way that you can follow well is to focus on who you're following. Jesus calls us to follow him, the Jesus who moves towards lepers, the Jesus who finds the condemnable people on the side of the road, the Jesus who heals the paralytics, the Jesus who is tender to the prostitutes and the scorned. That Jesus has called you and me to follow. The Jesus who is risen from the dead, Keller makes the point that if he's risen from the dead, then you have to follow him. If he has conquered death and sin and Satan, then his word goes. And so he has given you the same call, friends. Follow me. So Jesus seeks and he calls. He also redeems and remakes. Look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus redeems and remakes. So Matthew has a party. After being, call, after being sought and called, Matthew throws a party with all of his friends. And in this passage, note the gospel writer Matthew, what does he call his friends? My super awesome bestest buddies, sinners and tax collectors. He labels his friends by what they are and he includes himself in them. 
He, he labels them. He, he identifies with them. He includes himself in them. And one reason you got to love scripture and you can believe that it's true is because none of the writers make themselves look good. Matthew includes himself in this group of sinners and tax collectors at this party. And Jesus comes to this party and he reclines at this table, which is a sign of association and friendship. And I want to point out something very important in our tolerant moment. Jesus doesn't excuse the sin. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say, you're not sinners and tax collectors. It's all okay. It's actually included right here in scripture. That, that's, that's what they've done. That's, that's how they are apart from Christ. He doesn't excuse it, but he moves towards it. You can take it seriously and you can be merciful. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't deny it. He actually doesn't deny that they need a physician but he moves towards them in mercy. And the Pharisees, per usual, are furious and they complain not to Jesus, but to his disciples. They try to flank Jesus. They go to his followers and they use language of both guilt and shame. Why do you eat with them, those people? Why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why do you eat with people who we all know are beneath us? Why do you eat with people who do those kind of things, have that kind of lifestyle? Why do you eat with them? Why do you follow a teacher who eats with them? Language of guilt and shame. And it's at this point in the story, with this self-righteousness and this rejection that we find our problem your problem and my problem. Because we don't think that we are the problem. We don't see ourselves in that room as sinners and tax collectors. We see ourselves outside of it. We don't often see ourselves as the one needing rescue. People on the left in our current moment say, look at those bigots on the right. And people on the right say, look at those Marxists over there on the left. Whatever it is, they're both charges around identity and shame, who's in and who's out. It's interesting because traditional identities uh, historically come from your family, your culture, the roles you play. But in our modern identity, it's about uh, self-expression and self-determination. Whatever it is that we base it on apart from Christ will end up in this place right here that the Pharisees uh, are at in drawing lines of who's acceptable and who's not, who's inside, who's outside. And the problem that we see so broadly in culture, in your news feeds, on your cable news, your commentators and pundits, the problem exists out there at large because it originates in here personally. It only exists at the level and volume and pervasiveness in the world around us because it's in each of our hearts and we just turn the volume up on it. It's almost like we've lost impulse control or something. We don't see ourselves as the problem. Our nature is to build our identities on things other than God, on career and finances and exercise and health and parenting. And every time we do, we draw lines. Who's in, who's out. And by doing so, we create a law where strangely, we're always right. Those people are always sinners and we do what the Pharisees are doing. We keep score, we punish, we reject, we withhold mercy, we minimize our own flaws, our own anger, our own envy, our own gossiping, our own lust. We do it in our marriages, our homes, our friendships, our church. You've each done it and I've done it. We're all standing here on the same level ground. But here's the jarring truth of the gospel. 
that you are more sinful than you ever imagined and you're more loved than you ever dared dream. And if you find yourself at that spot where you're blind to your own sin and all you can see is everyone else's problem, this statement is a recalibration. But you're far worse than you imagine. And yet you're loved more than you can ever dream. With Jesus, there are not groups of right and wrong. There are proud and humble. It's a beautiful truth about Jesus. He's not walking around with a measuring stick. He's walking around with an invitation. Who's humble enough to receive? Who's too proud to reject? That's how Jesus works. Jesus came for those who know that they need mercy, this passage is showing us, for those who know that they are powerless against the sickness of sin. What's even more stunning is that at the cross, Jesus took on the guilt and shame of your sin and my sin. 1 Corinthians famously says, Paul says that uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might receive his righteousness. There's this exchange. He takes our sin. He gives us our righteousness. And Luther, commentating on that, says that when Christ hung on the cross, he hung there as you and me, that he hung there as David the adulterer, as Paul the murderer, as Nick the self-reliant, as Dan the porn addict, as Sarah the envious gossiper. Whatever it is, Christ took it and he hung there for you and for me. He redeems and he remakes. And this remaking comes in this language of a doctor with patients. You see Jesus' language here of those who need a physician. The interesting thing about doctors is not only can, can they see the sickness, though they can, they can see what can happen if the person is healed. They can see what happens if they're treated well, if the medication works, if the course of treatment comes to full, full bloom. What could that person's life be like? They can see that. Jesus can see this. Jesus knows the power of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the consequences of sin, but a doctor can also see the healing. He knows what the patient can become. And Jesus doesn't just see the sinner. This is beautiful. He doesn't just see the sinner. He sees what the sinner can become. A lot of times in sermon prep, you know, you're studying and you're reading and you're seeing what other people have said and you come across something and your first inclination is like, how can I say this in other language for today? And then sometimes you see something and it's, you read something that's so beautiful, you just want to let it stand alone. And I want to do that with Spurgeon here this evening with you guys. Because I want you to picture Jesus, the great physician, walking into this party of sinners and tax collectors, and he sees the effects of sin, and he sees their need for mercy, he sees their need for healing. And here's what Spurgeon says. His whole head is sick, saith Christ, but I can cure him. His whole heart is faint, but I can restore him and I will do it. His feet have gone astray. His mouth is an open grave. His eyes are windows of lust. His hands are stained with blood, but I will amend all that and make him a new creature, meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Jesus looks, you see, not so much at what the sinner is in himself as to what he can make him. He sees in every sinner the possibility of being a glorified saint who shall dwell with him forever and ever. If he chose you, poor sinner, before all worlds were made and bought you with his blood, he sees you not as you now are, but as you shall be when he has perfected you. Oh, what a wonder it will be 
when that poor drunkard over there shall sing in heaven as one of the spirits of men just made perfect, and when yonder harlot shall have a golden harp in her hand and sound forth the praises of him who hath loved her and washed her from her sins in his own blood. Yet he who has said it will do it. He who is mighty to save will redeem by power those whom he has secured by purchase. And, penitent sinner, Jesus already hears thee hymning his praise, and he sees thee as thou wilt be, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, washed in his blood, renewed by his spirit, brought safely home, and glorified with him forever. No wonder, then, that Christ is willing to come to poor sinners and dwell with them. He can see what you and I cannot see, what they shall be when he has fulfilled his purposes of mercy and grace concerning them. Jesus has moved towards each of you at your most unable and your most unlovable, and he does that because he's going to redeem and remake you. And lastly, Jesus knows and loves. In verse 13, Jesus knows and loves. Jesus tells the Pharisees to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he gives these Pharisees a homework assignment. Think about how they might have responded to that, these Pharisees, these scholars of the law, these professional religious people. When Jesus gives them, Jesus, the itinerant, homeless preacher, healer, gives them a homework assignment. Imagine the indignation. Imagine the scorn they felt in being given a homework assignment. But he gives them, Hosea 6.6, Jesus quotes here, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And these Pharisees knew the Torah inside out. They sought to keep it down to the most minute detail. And so just imagine as they leave this dinner with tax collectors and sinners huffing and puffing and stomping and thinking, what is this guy going to show us? And then imagine them going to the synagogue and looking up Hosea 6.6, stubbornly pulling out the scroll, unrolling it, realizing Jesus gave them half of a verse. They find Hosea 6.6 and they notice that he left out the second half in his quote. And imagine how they felt when they read this. This is the NLT. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. That's what Jesus quoted to them. And he left out, I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Another way to say that is, I don't want your religious practice. I don't want your busyness. I don't want your activities. I don't want your money. I don't want your service. I don't want all the things that you think make you good and right and acceptable with me. Don't want it. What I want is your heart. What I want is for you to know me and to be known by me. And you and I hear that, and we know that's not crazy because it's what we want in any relationship, isn't it? And that's what Jesus gives them, a homework assignment that exposes their need to know God, the God that they search for in Scripture and are so far from. How little does God want empty rote sacrifice? How little does he, how much does he want mercy? How, how much does he want you to know that he loves you? Hebrews tells us that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, Jesus gave them a homework assignment that one day he himself would fulfill. Jesus doesn't want empty religious adherence. He doesn't want your heritage with your own faith. He knows you and he wants you to know him. 
Matthew's gospel was the discipleship manual for the early church, and he was concerned to show Jesus as the promised rescuer. And the question as we close is, which group are you in? There's Matthew, the tax collectors and sinners. There's Jesus. There's the Pharisees. And the spoiler alert, you're not Jesus. So which one are you in this evening? Where do you find yourself? Like I said, without regular reminders, the story that you live in is too small. We need those reminders, like those family photo albums, like the picture carousel, like our little chat books, like whatever it is, wherever you keep those images that remind you of the story that you're a part of in your life, we need reminders like this one to look back into scripture and see these interactions of Jesus and be reminded that he seeks and saves, that he redeems and remakes, that he knows and he loves, and that we're a part of his story. We need it at moments like I personally need right now, honestly. His story is bigger than mine and yours. If you're a fellow merciless person, there's an invitation for you. Jesus wants you to come to the party to be known and loved. If you're a fellow former or current scumbag, there's good news for you. Jesus seeks and he calls you this evening. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.